Hey, hi, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics and new Catholics and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is based on one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me what's more important, the Bible or tradition. That led me on a deep dive into the history of my faith. I had to find the answer. I dug into the history of the church, history of the Bible, the biblical canon, history of, of my faith up to the Reformation, and beyond. And it was in that deep dive that I encountered the Catholic faith. It looms large in church history, and there it was. And as I began to read from actual Catholic sources, about what Catholics actually believed was when I realized that I knew next to nothing about being Catholic or what Catholics actually thought. It was based, my understanding, in large part on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I am joined by none other than Dr. John Bergsma to talk about Scripture, the Bible. How we can read the Bible from the heart of the Church like a Catholic, like Catholics have done for 2,000 years. In the context of the liturgy, in the perspective of the history, the tradition of the faith, the early church fathers and those who came before us, with all those things in mind, how we can read and understand the Bible. And it's really as a, in, in, in opposition to how I would have read and Dr. Bergson would have read as a Protestant pastor before his own conversion, because we read those, in those cases in, in isolation, really from history, from tradition, from, from context sometimes. And it's, wow, a very different way of reading the Bible. And this is a really meaty discussion about how we can do that. I think you're going to love it. This conversation and all others are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. If you want to support this show on a monthly basis, please head over there and have a look at how you can do that, because those people, those patrons, you wonderful people, help to underpin the show each and every week, and thank you. If you want to give a one-time donation, head over to paypal.me slash cordialcatholic, and you can support the show that way as well. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. John Bergsma on how to read the Bible like a Catholic from the heart of the church. It's a fantastic conversation. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. If you are watching us on YouTube, thank you. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so you get notifications when these new videos come out. And if you are listening on podcasts, thank you. We're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash the cordial Catholic to watch what you are listening to there. Friends, I am rejoined by one of uh, one of my favorite guests to have on the show. I'll just put it out there front and center. I'm talking about Dr. John Bergsman. He's professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, a former Protestant pastor, a convert to the Catholic Church, who's authored some fantastic books here on my shelf, including Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Revealing the Jewish Roots of the Church, and the Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood. I'm looking over here at my, at my shelf to remember the title of that book. 
And stunned by scripture, amongst others, his conversion story. Um, he's a popular speaker. Uh, he's he's a fantastic uh, contributor to a number of places. And he's got this new book out, which is The Word of the Lord, Reflections on the Sunday Mass Readings for Year C from Emmaus Road Press. And he's here this week. Thank you for coming back on the show, uh, Dr. Bergsma. Welcome and hello. Thanks, Keith. It's great to be on with you. Uh, always a pleasure. And, uh, you know, get to get to know my Canadian friends north of the border with, uh, you know, your, your five golden toques and uh, four sides of back bacon and all that stuff as we're getting close to Christmas here. That's exactly it. And I, I just bought my first snowblower, uh, John, just uh, just last week. I've been holding out for, for all of my Canadian life. And I thought I finally have to, I, I bit the That's bullet. It really is culturally now. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm fully, yeah, fully Canadian <laughs> up here. Listen, John, I got into some hot water last time uh, or recently on the podcast because I've said before that you're one of the nicest guys. Uh, us Catholic podcasters know this. It's a it's a trade secret that John Bergsman is the nicest Catholic guest you can have on your show. <laughs> and I, I've mentioned this a few times, Doctor Bergsman, and I recently had uh, Doctor Dennis McNamara on the show. I don't know if you know him or yeah. not from the Churchill yeah, Institute. Now at now at uh, Benedictine College in Kansas. Right. And uh, he's a he's a listener of the podcast. I don't know why, but also uh, a guest, a sometimes guest. And he came on, and I introduced him, and he said, "Yeah, but I'm not your favorite. I'm not the nicest guest on the show, am I?" <laughs> and I, I got in a bit of trouble for that because, of course, you, Dr. Bergman, are are, are well known to be the nicest guest uh, out there. So I, I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have no idea about the Catholic blogosphere world. I just yeah. show up to yeah. things that you and Annie Mitchell invite me on things. Yeah, and yeah. well, you know so what? You're, you're well known, and now and now maybe a bit disliked by other uh, other professors oh. because, you know, you get the, <laughs> you're making my life <laughs> yeah, difficult. Yeah, yeah they've reputation as the nicest. Yeah. I have to defend. You do. Maybe I should start doing mean things to people. You're like going to not showing up for live recordings and yeah, stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you're going. You're going to have to. I think so. Um, okay, that's fantastic. I want to begin, uh, if you could give us a little snippet of, of your conversion journey, because this podcast, of course, is for new Catholics, non-Catholics, and those digging deeper into the Catholic faith. And I've had you on the show before for an hour-long treatment of your story. I will link that in the, in the show notes. It's a fantastic conversion story. I think it figures in a bit to how we read the Bible, because you, of course, were a Protestant pastor steeped in the Bible, uh, became Catholic. So I wonder if, for, for a few minutes at least, give us maybe the, the Coles notes of your conversion story uh, from a Protestant pastor to a Catholic biblical theologian. How did that happen in, in a nutshell? Yes, sure. So I was um, pastor in a place very close to Canada called Michigan, and uh, <laughs> equally cold <laughs> as much of Canada. In fact, there's warmer parts of Canada, yeah. to be sure, than yeah. Michigan, like maybe Vancouver. But anyway, um, so I was a pastor in West Michigan, and um, oh yeah, boy, uh, so my, my father was a was a Navy chaplain, so I was you know strongly impressed by his example and wanted to be a Protestant pastor myself, although did not want to go into the military. But um, uh, so I uh, went through seminary, went through Protestant seminary, was serving a church. And uh, Keith, it's interesting that in the process of doing that Protestant ministry, I began to doubt certain fundamental Protestant concepts like, uh, sola fide, um, salvation by faith alone. I found that when I taught that to people or evangelized on the basis of sola fide or faith alone, people frequently took it to mean 
that they had to give intellectual consent to the idea of Jesus being Lord or God or something like this. And then after that, their moral behavior did not need to be transformed. They really didn't need to enter into a life of discipleship with Christ, you know, of taking up one's cross daily and denying oneself and following the Lord. And so I had a hard time, uh, practically speaking, making the transition between these ways of preaching the gospel based on faith alone and then the life of discipleship. And the more I looked at the New Testament, I realized it doesn't, the New Testament itself and Jesus himself, this is what primarily bothered me. Jesus does not preach a gospel of salvation by faith alone. People want to come after them, after him. And he says things like, you need to count the cost. You know, uh, no man, you know, sets about building a tower before counting the cost, et cetera. So he actually discourages people from flippantly following him where we whereas we were chasing after people and trying to sign sign people up, as it were, with a soft sell of what the commitment really was in terms of being a, a Christian. So that bothered me quite a bit. The um, the fact that more and more I realized uh, salvation by faith alone was not a scriptural ev- emphasis, wasn't even a scriptural teaching per se. And then uh, other things like um, the idea of the Bible alone or sola scriptura, the Bible alone being, you know, our only source of knowledge of the faith. Um the difficulty there, Keith, was I, I looked at my fellow pastors and saw such a multitude of different interpretations, not on insignificant things other either, uh, you know, on, on significant issues like what baptism is and what it does for you and when you should receive it, uh, the moral teaching of marriage, you know, what, what are the boundaries of marriage, divorce and remarriage, sexuality outside of marriage, you know, major um, issues that affected how one lived one's life and and how one's uh, path of discipleship with the Lord Jesus Christ was shaped. On these major issues, I found pastors and theologians all uh, ostensibly, um, you know, paying lip service to sola scriptura, the Bible alone, and, and coming to these widely differing positions that were mutually contradictory. And some people were okay with mutual contradiction, but when I read John 17, Jesus's prayer for unity before the beginning of the Passion, it seemed clear to me that Jesus's vision of the church was not one in which people were at loggerheads over virtually every uh, dogmatic, sacramental, you know, and pastoral issue. And that's what I observed within Protestantism around me. So all this chaos of scriptural interpretation, I, I thought to myself, this can't be correct. Jesus must have left us something more than simply the Bible in order to maintain the unity of the church. And he's clearly concerned about the unity of the church, as you see in John 17 and elsewhere. So, uh, Keith, I, I lost my faith in those in those two pillars, at least, uh, if not others, of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, about this time, um, b- because of these doubts I was having, these theological doubts, I decided to postpone my pastoral career and go back to school and get another doctoral degree, another de- a graduate degree, this time a doctorate in scripture. I applied to all these schools in, in God's province. Um, the, the, the most receptive, most enthusiastic school that offered me the best package was the University of Notre Dame, uh, a Catholic institution, obviously, in South Bend, Indiana. And they had a 
ecumenical faculty. Um, and so I could study with Protestants and be paid by a Catholic institution. So, hey, you know, it's like robbing the Egyptians. I thought that was a sweet <laughs> deal. So I go down to the University of Notre Dame and I begin my doctorate there. And there I meet, met this guy uh, who I like to say had three qualities I never thought I'd see in the same person. He was highly intelligent, full of the Holy Spirit, and Catholic. And I didn't see how you could combine those three. Uh, you know, I'd met whole, uh, Spirit-filled Catholics before, but it didn't seem like their elevator went to the top floor. I'd met intelligent Catholics before, but they were almost always nominal and cynical and secularized. Um, I had met intelligent, Spirit-filled people before, but they had always been Protestant. So intelligent, spirit-filled, Catholic, that was a new combination for me. And I was just floored by this walking contradiction named Michael. And uh, so we began to um, meet weekly to discuss Protestant Catholic issues. Um, He defended the Catholic faith in a very unfair and underhanded way, namely by citing Scripture uh, which I, I just thought was was against the rules of the game. Somewhere there was, a you know, the rules of Protestant-Catholic dialogue was, I'm the Protestant, I get to cite Scripture, the Catholic guy gets to cite church documents or something like that. But here he is using the Bible against me um, on, on issues of the sacraments and so on. But, you know, inside I was actually quite impressed. And the more that we met together and the more I saw his knowledge of Scripture and his ability to defend the Catholic faith from Scripture, uh, the more this was unsettling uh, my Protestant convictions and ma- making me really open to hearing about the Catholic faith. But it wasn't quite enough because in the end, it was just like arguing with Baptists or Methodists. I was uh, a Dutch Calvinist. Um, And so, you know, uh, there's all these other Protestant groups with their ways of interpreting the scripture. And so with Michael, I became impressed that he could defend the Catholic approach from scripture. But hey, Methodists could defend their position from scripture and Lutherans theirs and Calvinists theirs. And so everybody can defend themselves from scripture. So it wasn't enough to put me over the edge. But Michael said, look, why don't we go to the earliest church fathers, the ones that knew the apostles, read their writings and allow them to really cast the deciding vote between our two opposing positions, really see, you know, do they come down on a Catholic or a Protestant side of these major issues that are dividing us? And so we began to read Clement of Rome and St. Ignatius of Antioch. And when I got to St. Ignatius of Antioch, who's writing 10 years after the death of St. John the Apostle, he's writing in the year 106, so extremely early in Christian history, within living memory of the apostles themselves. And he himself, Ignatius, was the bishop of Antioch, so the chief pastor of the churches of Antioch and Syria. And he was being taken to Rome for his martyrdom. And as he passed by the city of Smyrna in uh, Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey, he dashed off a letter to the local church and warned them about various heresies. And there was one line that ended up really striking home to me. He, t- he tells these early Christians, stay away from anyone who refuses to confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father raised for our salvation. And uh, I read that again 
uh, stay away from anyone who refuses to confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which, not who, not who suffered, but which suffered. So the grammatical antecedent is the flesh, not Jesus, okay? The flesh which suffered, the flesh which was raised by the Father for our salvation. And it dawned on me, uh, there is no possible way to get a symbolic interpretation out of what he just said. In fact, he's ruling out symbolic interpretations. He's saying that people that think it's just a symbol are not true Christians, and you ought to stay away from them because they don't have the true faith. And then it dawned on me that if I had jumped in a time machine and went back to 100, the year 100, I would be a heretic. I would not be considered a true Christian because... My doctrinal standards insisted that the Catholic Mass was a condemnable idolatry. That's actual language that we used in our doctrinal statements as Dutch Calvinists, that the Mass was a condemnable idolatry because in it bread and wine were worshipped as if they were God. Of course, they aren't. They're just creations, and so it's the worship of a created item. It's idolatry. So we, we out, you know, foundational to our identity was the denial of the real presence of the Eucharist. That's part of what made us... Dutch Calvinists. And that would have made us heretics. Still, it really makes us heretics. Honestly, we're too polite to use that term anymore. But really, it is a heresy to deny the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And again, I was convicted that if I went back to the early church, I would not have been considered a true Christian. And I wanted to be a true Christian according to the standards of early Christians, of the apostles and the first pastors of the church and these early martyrs. I wanted to share the same faith that led all these Christians to give their lives in the arena and willingly be eaten by beasts rather than deny their faith in Jesus Christ. That was the faith that I wanted to have. And that faith began with the conviction of Jesus's real presence uh, in the Eucharist. And so I converted on that issue within 36 hours. I had decided in my heart I needed to become Catholic. It might be sooner, it might be later, but it was going to happen. And, um, and, and the rest was just, you know, the playing out of, of that conviction. It took about 18 months to go through the whole process and, you know, be received formally into the church and with my wife and many conversations with my wife and all kinds of other interesting things. But that was the heart of it, really, the testimony of the earliest of the fathers to the real presence of Christ. And, of course, that's the literal sense of the entire New Testament on the Eucharist. Is, is just that it is his flesh, just the simple, plain meaning of the words in the Gospels and in Paul's letters. You know, it's just is his body. So it's the literal sense of Scripture. It's the obvious conviction of the earlier and later fathers. So who am I to argue with what Scripture plainly says and what, what the fathers affirm? Likewise, I, I cannot argue with testimony like that. <laughs> Well said, Dr. Bergsmo, well said. And that, that has also struck me, you know, when I, these, I Marcus Gordai from the, the Journey Home, Coming Home Network always says that these verses you never see, right? These verses that you, that you somehow you read in your Bible over and over again and never actually notice. And, and that, that the literal sense of, of communion, right, in letters of Paul, in, in the Gospels, when Christ is speaking, it's, it's quite literal. <laughs> he says the, the flesh and the blood. But we somehow, we never saw that or, or read that. You know, we read the rest of the Bible literally. Right. Sometimes to, to the extreme when everything right. is literal. Mm -hmm. But somehow 
we managed to wiggle out from reading that those passages literally. The, the irony was too much for yeah. me because I was in this argument with Michael, and I'm supposed to be all I love about Michael, the by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Michael Dauphine down in, in uh, Ave Maria, but um, you know, he, I'm supposed to be all about the literal sense as the Protestant member of this, you know, argument. And uh, and here my Catholic friend is standing on the literal sense of Scripture, and I'm trying to weasel out of it. And, and this is what we accused Catholics of trying to do. Yeah. You know, like, oh, you're using your figurative hermeneutic to get out of the plain meaning of God's Word, you know. And, and here the shoe's on the other foot, and I'm trying to, you know, find creative ways to avoid the direct sense of what Jesus says at the Last Supper and what Paul is saying and uh and I'm like, I can't do this. I can't stay out of the Catholic Church because they take Scripture too seriously. I mean, that's a that's a terrible reason not to be Catholic because they're too, you know, they're too convicted about the truth of Scripture. So I love that line from the Tantum Ergo, which I think sums up the true Catholic attitude about Scripture, where uh, St. Thomas says, um, Credo quid quid dixit dei filius, nil hoc verbo veritatis verius. I, be- I believe whatever the Son of God says, quid quid. It's a fun fun Latin word. It means like whatever the heck, you know? It's like I believe whatever he says, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, I believe it. Okay, credo quid quid dixit dei filius. I believe whatever the Son of God says, because nothing can be truer than the word of truth. And uh, that, that's the true, that, that's the, that's the Marian heart of, of true Catholics is to just have that docility before the word of God and this absolute trust that it's true, even sometimes when it's contrary to our senses or appears to be contrary to, the re- to reason. We know it never truly is contrary to reason. That's only just apparent. Um, but, uh, but sometimes we're in, you know, situations uh, and God allows us, you know, sometimes to undergo trials of the intellect where uh, his word uh, in its various forms seems not to make sense to us. And, and uh, that's actually a gift of God that he gives us in order that we can share in the mystery of Christ's suffering. And Christ had to do something that did not make sense. You know, an innocent man dying for the, for the wicked. So many other ways, the son of God, um, you know, the sinless son of God bearing the punishment of, of evildoers. You know, that's the sign of the cross is contradiction. Yet Christ humbled his intellect and trust of the father out of out of to, to set us an example. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, docility toward the word of God is is the is the authentic uh, uh, the, the authentic attitude of of the Catholic believer. And uh, even though we've, you know, had many examples of prominent Catholics who denied the word of God in various ways, they are not truly representative of, of the heart of our tradition. The saints are, and the saints always had this docility before the word of God. I, I love that. I love that. That's the, for me, one of those, those touchstone words I come back to over and over again, right? The right. docility, I, I absolutely love that before the word of God. That's, I'm going to quote you on that at that, some point. That's, that's, that's the blessed mother, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, be it done to me according to the, to your word, yeah. you know, like what, what, what vulnerability there. Right. And of course our society hates vulnerability. Yeah. Right. So they reject that. And, Oh, you know, she's going to risk being oppressed by the patriarchy, you know, but she's docile before the word of God. And so she becomes the most famous woman in human history, the most exalted woman in all of human history, because she did something that was politically incorrect. 
<laughs> I, I forgot how angry you get sometimes. You get very passionate about, about... <laughs> It's all part of the fun. I love it. So th- this, I think, segues perfectly into, into the idea of reading, reading the Bible from within the church. Because first of all, I, I wanted to ask you how you as a Protestant pastor would have unpacked and read the Bible in, in your in your personal Bible study, in, in how you would preach to your congregation, because there's a there's a, a significant difference between how that is normally done and how the church shows us the Bible. And I mean, here's one example of this, this idea of sola scriptura, right? Is is not how the church understands scripture to begin with, right? This, the scriptures aren't like a rule book to, to find everything of faith and morals in necessarily, right? So there's one way that we as Catholics don't read the Bible. We read it differently, um, yeah. And we'll go maybe around to that, but I want to ask you first how you read the Bible as a Protestant studying. I mean, studying the Bible quite intensely. How would you have read that or read that to your to your congregation at one point? Sure, sure. So um, you know, there there are many things in common. All right, with the way that I read Scripture as a Protestant, the way that I do now, and I went to an excellent sem- seminary um, that did a lot of good training. So taught me the original languages and how to read carefully and pay very close attention to grammar and syntax and the, the phrasing and to do word studies. Um, and, and so that was my primary methodology was doing studies of the meaning of the Greek words of um, St. Paul, for example, in Philippians or something like that. So he uses joy a lot in the book of Philippians. So you, you look at, you know, the, the words, the words for joy in Greek and how they're used and you kind of, kind of dig into that and in other terms as well. Uh, and and none, none of this was bad, um, but it, it tended to be a little bit myopic. That is like uh, short-sighted or um, short-focused. So we look at this unit and and some, the way that some of our professors taught us, it was like you can, you can get everything that God wants you to know just from looking at that unit without really taking into account you know, the, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And so I'd say that that the one of the biggest differences between how I read and taught the scriptures then versus now, Keith, is the first principle of uh, the interpretation of scripture that's given in the catechism and in Dei Verbum, which is the big document from Vatican II about scripture. And, you know, the catechism borrows from Dei Verum, but when it talks about the interpretation of Scripture, it gives three principles. And the first one is keep in mind the content and the unity of Scripture. And that is something that I didn't consistently do as a Protestant. I wouldn't say we were necessarily opposed to that. Um, And and some of my professors did that better than others, but there wasn't quite... Uh, the same, at least the same consciousness that I've that I've come to now of the um, the context of all of the Bible, and that that's so important because um, you know the the Bible as a whole. How do I how do I phrase this? The Bible as a whole communicates to us, Keith, and and when we look at a little passage, it's not just what that passage says, but how that passage fits into the pattern from Genesis to Revelation. You know how it how it's because it, it's like a symphony and. And uh, you don't want to listen to just the flute and just the violin. You wanted to listen to them in the context of 
how they are blending with the rest of the sympathy, uh, symphony. And, and I guess that was that was part of my problem as a Protestant was just like just listening to the flute as a melody, you know, or just listening to the trombone and then not keeping in mind everything that else that scripture is saying and how it blends together and how it's unified. And I'm much more conscious about that now and much more uh, 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 self-aware. And when I when I teach my students as well, we talk a lot about this. It's like, okay, it's not just Deuteronomy 17, but you got to place Deuteronomy 17 in its place within the broader scheme of of Revelation and understand how it's contributing to the way the Bible, you know, is communicating to us as a whole about the topic under consideration. So that would be one major thing, uh, Keith. Um, and then there's other things like tradition and the role of the church as, inter as interpreter and things like that that we could get into as well. Yeah, and you, so when you would have preached from the Bible too, I imagine you weren't preaching from the lectionary, maybe you, you were, but what you find most commonly in, in Protestant churches and even Juggle churches that I ran with, right, is a series, a, a, right. a series on a book of the Bible or a series on a theme or, right. or Lord help us, a series on, on popular movies then then tying it <laughs> into the Bible or something, right? But, yeah, I never did that. Yeah, just, yeah, thank thank, no, thank goodness. But, yeah. that, but that's how a, right. a lot of these churches would structure their, their preaching from Absolutely. the Bible, right? Right. Yeah. So I typically took letters of St. Paul and would preach through them over a series of weeks. And uh, that, you know, that gives you kind of a, um, it's not terrible, but it can give you a very one-sided exposure to the word of God, because all you're doing is the Pauline epistles. And and Paul's epistles were written to specific churches who are going to undergoing specific things that aren't always necessarily what, what your congregation is experiencing, you know? So the, the lectionary uh, that, that we use, and thank God for the lectionary, it's a, a beautiful, it was a gift, you know, and I think, you know, providential leading uh, in, in Vatican II, because it really is a beautiful work of art. Uh, the, the, this this three-year lectionary that we use now, now we're heading into year C, which follows mostly the Gospel of Luke. Um, but uh, when we go to Mass and we have a first reading from the Old Testament, then we have a psalm, and then we have an epistle reading, and then the Gospel. And on Sunday Masses, of course, they're lined up um, in, in such a way that they are internally connected with one another, and you, you see a pattern and themes that are connecting these readings. And it just sets you, it sets, it sets up really full Bible preaching. It, it really sets up this, this opportunity to proclaim the Word of God from Genesis through Revelation because you see these connections between these texts from different parts of the Bible and different eras of salvation history. Whereas what I typically did, you know, I'd have like six verses from Philippians, and I'd be proclaiming that, and but, but without an Old Testament text, without a psalm, without the gospel— and so it was kind of decontextualized. It's just kind of like isolated there. Here's some words of advice from St. Paul, you know, coming out of out of where, you know, nowhere. And uh, and it wasn't kind of this full Bible preaching. Again, it's so ironic because, you know, other churches call themselves Bible churches, but we get more Bible in mass. And it really, you know, makes possible this kind of symphonic uh, you know, preaching of uh, of God's word, 
um, over its over its whole course, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah, and it, it is remarkable how much I, I think that that non-Catholics might be surprised to learn how much Bible is actually just read in in a Catholic Mass, right? And right. then and then how it's how it's set in the lectionary to to line up so beautifully uh, on yes. on most Sundays, right? And I know if you if you as a Catholic were to read through the Mass readings every for every Sunday in advance or or afterwards to to reflect on them, you're getting this picture of the whole history of salvation that right. really, I think, I'm going to go on a, out on a limb here, and I don't know if this is controversial or not, but that, but Protestants don't get in so many cases, right? I, gosh, how fast, say, Mary was unlocked for me, or how fast some of these things were unlocked, these these Catholic, quote-unquote, concepts were unlocked just by going to Mass on, on one right. of these days, one of these feast days, or or reading that day's, or that week's, uh, you know, gospel reading in, in line with the Old Testament reading and the Epistle. These things are so beautifully lined up for us by the Church that, that we have this reading from the Old Testament that reveals, oh, oh you know, the, the the Ark of the Covenant, or or right, or, or talking about Eve, and then we read this from the Gospel where Mary is, oh my gosh, make these you know make these amazing connections. Right. Your your friend Scott Hahn has has that story right where he went, he had this revelation about who Mary was and went to Mass that day on her feast day and heard those readings read in Mass and went, oh, you know, I, I'm not original in in this thought after all, right? Because the Church gives that to us, and I don't think. I don't think that I ever got that full service kind of Bible preaching, as you say, as a Protestant, because we didn't we didn't make those connections because they weren't it wasn't how we read the Bible. It wasn't. It wasn't. You know, it was, uh, you know, traditionally in, in my tradition, there was a lot of atomistic preaching where you take a few verses and you pick you pick apart the grammar and the syntax and and the meanings of words and stuff like that and you're really not bringing the rest of scriptural revelation to bear and, and it tends to be you know kind of narrowly focused on maybe a couple of doctrinal points and maybe some points of morality uh but uh you know it's not salvation history now you know it, it's possible and I, don't get me wrong there's protestant preachers that preach salvation history and and do a good job of you know including a lot and some of them use adaptations of the catholic lectionary the common lectionary for example is very popular in mainstream protestant uh denominations although those denominations tend to be declining now but um but yeah you know i think you're absolutely right keith that there tend to be uh in most protestant groups i was familiar with they tended to gravitate toward the epistles of paul um, most Protestant theologians, I mean, their aspiration was to write the commentary on Romans, you know, because of the, the, the way that Romans has functioned in Protestant history as like the book that liberated Luther <laughs> from the shackles of Rome, you know, so every uh, Protestant theologian or Bible scholar wants to write the great Romans commentary. And uh, the epistles of Paul, like when, when I was when I was uh, growing up, we went to a Calvinist Baptist church in uh, uh, Hawaii uh, near my high school. And God bless them. I mean, wonderful, wonderful people can't, you know, owe, owe them tremendous. The, the pastoral staff was absolutely wonderful. But we spent most of my high school career preaching through Ephesians. OK, so, you know, over years, so just taking a verse at a time and you know, and taking breaks and doing some other things, but it's mostly Ephesians. And so, I mean, Ephesians is great. You could do worse than preaching Ephesians. You can <laughs> preach about popular movies, right? So it's not, it's not terrible, but it, again, uh, you know, it, it the, the lectionary is a wonderful gift and it kind of forces us 
to to consider the the scope of God's revelation, old and new testament. I guess the other thing that goes with reading the Bible from the heart of the church is is the resources you use to shore that up, right? I mean, you could you could read the Bible, uh, you know, pre- preach a series on on Ephesians and 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 do an okay job, but if you're presenting this this view of just kind of your interpretation of what you're reading based on the syntax and the grammar and maybe a couple of uh, commentaries that you know and you kind of draw some things from those, how much more do we have at our disposal? And I think use use well as Catholics uh, you know, to, to bring to bear our understanding of, of Scripture, right? The, the Church Fathers right. and commentaries yeah. down through the last 2,000, you know, nothing's off limits. And the, the whole of, of history is, is, is you know, the last 2,000 years, there's, there's Catholic right. history. We have a wellspring to draw from. What is lost in not reading the Bible with that greater context, yeah, yeah. Uh, say as an evangelical yeah. or something. Yeah. So there's a fundamental difference now. A lot of a lot of Protestants are coming around on this. A lot there, there's there's been some shift uh, in these attitudes over the past 20, 30 years, um, and there's been there's increasingly a greater appreciation of the Church Fathers and of the Church tradition uh, among evangelicals, uh, for example, than there was certainly than like 40 years ago. Um, but, uh, but there's a fundamental difference, like coming out of the Reformation, like in, in that polemical situation in the post-Reformation period, tradition for Protestants was primarily an impediment to the understanding of Scripture. So, and, and this is a view that really I still grew up with, you know, my, my parents and, you know, was kind of old school Calvinists and the sense in old school Calvinism was, Tradition was like this incrustation of barnacles on the hull of a ship. And all that tradition does is make you slower in the water and it disguises the truth and and it it impedes. And so what you want to do is scrape the tradition off and like get it, get down to the pure unvarnished word of God, you know, apart from any human uh, accretions, etc. And so, uh, so tradition was uh, was something almost wicked uh, that that disguised, distorted, impeded, etc. The search for the true word of God, and and then that that attitude really, uh, you know, we, we could talk about it, how it influenced modern biblical scholarship, which is primarily a Protestant uh, child, and uh, but but you see that that anti-traditional uh, bent in historical criticism and modern biblical interpretation. But now, fundamentally different is this Catholic view that no tradition is a an assistance, tradition is an aid, tradition is a help to understanding what God is really saying. And so I, I'm struggling with this text. And so what do I do? I go to these great saints. I go to, go to these holy people that were more free from sin than I was. And so sin clouds the mind. It prevents us from understanding God's word. So I go to these, these holy people of the past who proved their, their faith by their deeds and, and whose lives you know, were, were sealed in holiness. And like, what did they see in the text? And, and they can help me to understand God's word. They can assist me in that. And so that's the, the, the idea of, of tradition as a help to interpretation. It's like, uh, you know, taking advantage of your older brothers and sisters in faith, the saints and the doctors of the church and so on, and going to them 
to 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 be assisted in uh, reading God's word. So there's this fundamental difference of like is tradition a help or a hindrance? And the Protestant says it's a hindrance. The Catholic says no, it's a help. And so I, I've come around. And so you know we, we talked first, Keith, about you know content and unity. That's the first criteria that the Catechism uses for you know, interpreting the Bible. And we talked about that whole Bible preaching, Genesis through Revelation and all the readings and stuff. And now we're kind of talking about the next thing that the catechism says, which is keep in mind the living tradition of the church. So when, when we interpret as Catholics, we interpret in light of tradition. And then, you know, the liturgy has a role here because the liturgy is the primary way that we learn the tradition, actually. Uh, and different theologians have described the, the liturgy as like the primary vehicle of uh, tradition. So uh, it was a great service in Vatican II when, when they put together the lectionary that we use, because to, in order to put together the lectionary, what they did was they went back to the church fathers and they looked for uh, these, these correlations of new and old Testament texts that were kind of standard among the fathers. And that's how they got the idea of what to match up on what Sundays, what texts to match up with each other. And so the, the, the lectionary conveys to us a very traditional way of reading the Bible. But then the, the, other, uh, the other aspects of the Mass and the prayers and so on are all guiding our understanding of God's Word, uh, guiding it according to tradition. And so reading according to tradition, reading in, in harmony with the liturgy, uh, these are all ways that, you know, a Catholic Bible study is different than, say, reading the Bible outside the Catholic Church. Yeah, because what what was a fundamental realization for me in becoming Catholic was that the and just reading actually reading Christian history in general. I, I read a whole bunch of non-Catholic, trying to find some some secular historians to read about the Reformation and to try and get some unbiased views. Of course, then you get the you get strange other strange lenses because they aren't they right. aren't religious. You get strange human rights lenses that are really strange. So I read a lot of different history books you know in my journey to become catholic from perspectives and one of the things that occurred to me then was well hey the bible was originally read in the liturgy right. that was the primary means that the people of god heard the word of god was in the liturgy right. and here we are at the reformation kind of stripping that away yeah. and then 500 years later we've kind of normalized this idea of the bible being something you can you you know a personal bible study is fine right. but but it's become normative to read the Bible outside That's of right. the context in which it was read for such a long time, right? right? Yeah, my Protestant culture prioritized, like, the, the the paradigm was you in your prayer closet, you know, doing your daily Bible reading. That was, like, the privileged thing was individual, kind of like Lexio, you know, to give it a positive spin. It's kind of like doing Lexio, but that was personal Lexio was, was the paradigm for reading the scripture, whereas traditionally for Christians, it's been public proclamation of the people of God in, in, in the liturgy when you're, you're going to celebrate the sacrament. And, and uh, so, yeah, so we're getting reoriented to kind of this communal hearing and reception of the word of God together with other Christians in the context of receiving the sacraments. And, and then personal lexio, et cetera, can assist that, but not replace that or not displace that, you know? So <laughs> absolutely. And then another thing here, <laughs> Keith, is I know you witnessed this as well. Like you look at Protestant church history and so many denominations were started by some charismatic figure, not, not, you know, charismatic in the Pentecostal sense, but charismatic in the sense like he had a strong personality 
And uh, he, he takes a couple of verses with a novel interpretation of them. And then, boom, we got a new denomination, you know, uh, Seventh-day Adventist and uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and, uh, you know, various branches, the Stone Campbell movement and stuff like that. You know, they, they focus in on a couple of verses here, a couple of verses there. And like suddenly these verses become super important and become like the hermeneutical or the interpretive key for the whole Bible is you like, you got to, you know, understand this end times passage or this part of Daniel or whatever. And, and typically when you put those characteristic interpretations of these denominational founders in the perspective of church history, you find like, that's a really, really, eccentric interpretation that that guy had and he uh, sometimes sometimes these founders of churches and founders of denominations quite literally just forgot about other passages of the bible <laughs> that have a completely different emphasis and they only years later their successors were left with the problem of reconciling these idiosyncratic interpretations of our founder that's what happened with lutheranism like luther went off half cocked takes a couple of verses his you know his whole salvation by faith alone and, and like all this kind of, and then melanchthon philip philip melanchthon his his faithful understudy was left with picking up the mess and, and trying to reconcile the crazy stuff that Luther said with everything else that's said in the Bible, you know, and, 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 and that, that kind of dynamic as it repeated itself with so many different, you know, foundations of different denominations and so on The the first guy, you know, goes off, uh, with these idiosyncratic interpretations, and then you got to clean up the mess for the rest of the history of the denomination. But but tradition helps us there, Keith, because you know, as Catholics, we're we're not going to do that. You know, a priest is not going to come along and have this novel interpretation of Revelation twelve five, and and suddenly like, you know, because as Catholics, you're like, oh, give me a break. You know, you can't tell me that all of the fathers were wrong about that. You know, we just have this sense that, you know, the fathers and the doctors were not all completely wrong. And, and we're not really open as Catholics to somebody coming along tomorrow with a creative interpretation of some passage of Ezekiel and like revamping the Christian faith. Like, no, dude, that's, you can't tell me because origin, you know, origin said that the scriptures are more, tr more truly written on the heart of the church than on the written page. You know, so there's this sense that the, the saints and, and, and the church as a whole has appropriated God's word and lived it out. And so we can deepen our understanding. We're certainly open to deepening our understanding and going deeper, but not like changing the whole paradigm and and that's that's what i experienced as a protestant we would have a synod in our denomination every year talking about synodal movements and stuff like that i don't actually care for synods because i lived under synod <laughs> and the problem with the synod the synod would meet every year and everything was up for grabs every year you never knew what the synod was going to do they just like can they could say like, well now we believe this you know like well you can't live like that you know you're spending you're, you're trying to raise your children in the faith and you don't want this this assembly you know getting together of your like suddenly changing what you've been telling your kids is the gospel <laughs> truth right so that's a that's a terrible way to live we need as human beings we need continuity in our religious beliefs we need to know that the truths that we're giving to our children are, are still going to be there to our grandchildren and stuff like that and in the catholic faith we have that assurance um you do get crazy voices that 
cause problems and, and sow doubts and stuff like that, but they, they will pass away. Um, the, the amazing thing about the idea of tradition and that being one of the lenses to read the read scripture through is, yeah, you, you avoid some of that craziness, the, the, the novel interpretations, those outliers, those... I mean, I have I have a good friend, a very good friend who's evangelical. We, we once in a while get into a great big fight about our faith and uh, and then don't talk for about it for a few years and then get back into it again. It's a, a nice cycle that that uh, keeps us friends and keeps us, you know, actively trying to convert or reconvert one another. And one of the debates we had, you know, the, our last big debate was over how to understand like John 6. And his, his idea was, well, look, you use these verses to interpret John 6. This is my hermeneutic, is, is I use these verses here, and that's how I understand John 6. And I said, well, what about how that was understood for the first, you know, 1,500 years in continuity by, by the church, by Christians? Like, isn't, isn't that worth something? And isn't it weird and kind of has a bit of hubris to come along and say, you know what, actually, they were all wrong. Christ. All those Christians were wrong. <laughs> all those great saints and great doctors of the church and all those bishops and those theologians, they were all wrong and suddenly, you know, were right in this radical reinterpretation. It, right, having, having the church show us how to read the Bible in, in context, right, in the context of the, of the lectionary, of the liturgy, and, in, right. in, and seated in tradition, right, right helps us to, to avoid, helps those kind of, kind of hard things to, to, to justify right. those radical reinterpretations of things, right. right? Like I was really troubled, you know, uh, when I was in college uh, about like uh, the passage about cutting off your hand and stuff like that, gouging out your eye. And I was thinking, you know, I spent months struggling with, you know, maybe we have all been wusses for 2000 years. And the reason why, you know, we don't have the courage to cut off our limbs, like Jesus said, and, uh, but, you know, as a Catholic, what you do with passages like that is you look at the example of the apostles. Did the apostles gouge out their eyes or cut out, cut off their hands? No, they didn't, because they understood that our Lord's expressions there were hyperbolic. You know, they were kind of this Jewish tradition of teaching by provocative or outlandish statements that force the listener to think deeply about what the teacher is trying to communicate. Like, oh, he can't literally mean, you know, to maim ourselves. Well, if he doesn't literally mean that, what is he actually saying? You know, it's this way of forcing you to have to engage what the teacher is saying. And and, and I didn't understand that. But you see, as Catholics, we, we know, first of all, when we don't just arbitrarily take take literally what we want to be literal and then figurative what we want to be figurative. Okay. We have a criteria. Okay. And it's, it starts with the apostles because the apostles are the fountainhead of tradition, you know, and we look at, okay, what of our Lord's teachings did the apostles understand to be literal? And what of our Lord's teachings did the apostles understand in a figurative sense? And you'll see that the apostles did not take the Lord literally in terms of cutting off one's hand, and none of them practiced that. But they did take him literally uh, with respect to the Eucharist. And, you know, so Paul says it's a communion in the body and blood of Jesus. You know, and if you take it unworthily, you're sinning against the body and blood of Jesus, you know. So, so we have a guide, whereas, you know, again, in Protestantism, the circles I grew up with, it, it, there was a certain kind of arbitrariness and, and a, a lack of sort of a keel on the ship, keeping the ship going in one direction. And theoretically, we are open to having our views like radically, uh, you know, revised if somebody could make a cogent case that this was the true interpretation of a certain passage. 
Um, but uh, but again, as Catholics, we're guided by, okay, how did the apostles understand our Lord? How did the saints understand the Lord? These are people that excelled us in, in holiness and in prayer and in intimacy with the Lord. And, um, you know, so if they did not maim themselves, then it's probably not necessary for me to maim myself either. It's probably, you know, not exactly what the Lord was getting at in that passage. So it, it, it's things like it's things like that, you know, the, the, within the Catholic faith, we have the, these guides to interpretation such that we're not just picking and choosing, but we're following the apostolic example, and then we're following the example of tradition and and of the saints in our interpretation of Scripture and not simply doing what, you know, what our whims or our caprices would dictate, you know, toward the Word of God. Yeah, and I can remember as an evangelical when I was beginning to look into the Catholic Church and I was doing kind of weird things, looking at getting bits and pieces of the Church Fathers and different, I was kind of on the edges of Catholicism when I began that journey. And I'd found some kind of commentary from the early Church Fathers on on one of the Gospels we were reading in a Bible study. I went to this ecumenical Bible study and there was... Uh, th- there was a Lutheran pastor there uh, who wore the who wore the collar at the time. I thought that was kind of cool. I hadn't seen a priest wearing a collar before, and uh, uh, several other you know people. One guy was one friend was a Latin and, and Greek professor who was there, and quite a, quite a, a colorful and, and unique Bible study. And I brought this commentary with me and began to 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 read from it on the passages that we we're looking at. And then for me, it was like this this gold mine to discover that there were people before us in this little room who had read these scriptures and wrestled with right. them, right? Because so often those kind of Bible studies are just, let's look at the Bible and unpack it and talk about what we think it means. Right. And, and, and forgetting the, the tradition of so many people before us who wrestled with those right. and had a lot of good things to Can say. Can you imagine that we're not the first to read this? No. Yeah, and that people yeah. who are closer in time to the language and the culture and the practices of Jesus read this before us. So that's really persuasive for me. That's why I find especially the apostolic fathers so important that we're, you know, writing within living memory of the apostles themselves, Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Rome, uh, you know, because the, the, the argument is they're so close in time and culture and geography to the writers of scripture. And that gives them a kind of, you know, privileged access to, you know, what is really being communicated in uh, the New Testament writings. Um, and, uh, and, you know, from a distance of 2000 years in a very different culture now in, in, in the United States, that, that, that is kind of an impediment that we have to get past and th- kind of think our way back into the first century. But these, uh, these, especially the earliest of the fathers who were so close, you know, re- really privileged witnesses to what, um, you know, the forms of communicating and, and what the apostles meant in their writings. And then the, the other fathers, you know, maintained that conversation. You know, the Augustine read Ignatius, you know, the other fathers, they, they read each other and they, uh, they moved in a, uh, they moved like a river, you know, kind of organic development, got deeper and deeper into the understanding of God's word, uh, always building on the insights of those who came before. But then what happens in the Reformation for many Protestants is like you, you sweep that all out, you know, and you go straight from, 
you know, Paul to Calvin and you leap over everybody in between without that benefit of centuries of meditating on God's word in different contexts. And it's really an impoverishment, unfortunately. And it just seems crazy, yeah, yeah. right? It seems crazy that we, we would do why, that. Why we, would you think that that would be a good thing to do? Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. Okay, so for that for the Catholic or you know the the convert looking into the faith of the the new Catholic, if they want to read their Bible from the heart of the church, how would how do you suggest going about that in in a way that makes sense? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So um, I've actually written books about this because it's not something that we can answer in fifteen minutes. Yeah. Simply, but uh, you know, my my first book, uh, Bible Basics for Catholics, Keith, which we've talked about before, uses simple stick figures to teach the story of salvation history. But the whole goal of that book was really that first principle of biblical interpretation from the catechism. You know, keep in mind the content and the unity of Scripture. And what I discovered was that so many people, both Catholics and Protestants, don't have the content and the unity. They don't really have the big picture of how the storyline goes from Genesis to Revelation, um, and, and then they get lost in the weeds of the details, and they lose the path of, you know, the storyline. And so keeping it simple and moving from Adam, you know, to the return of Christ um, and using stick figures to do it, that kind of gives you this big picture of the storyline of, of salvation history that allows you that, to then understand any particular book of the Bible in its place in the bigger chronological uh, story of, of uh, biblical um, communication. So that, that's, that's one way, you know, I, I would, you know, just frankly recommend that book to people that are beginning to read the Bible as Catholics. This is a way to kind of get the context of scripture in which the fathers and the doctors, they all emphasize that this was important kind of getting the big picture down. So th that's, that's one thing. And then, um, you know, there's, there's, you know, uh, there's so many resources for, um, for reflection on God's word. And here, here's another book, you know, we were talking earlier in the broadcast about what, what's just come out, these, these word of the Lord books. Okay. So, um, the, you know, we're on this three year lectionary cycle where, uh, in year A, we read Matthew for most for for the year. Year B, which is just just finished up, that was Mark, and now we're beginning year C, and we're reading the Gospel of Luke uh, throughout the year, and we have all these lectionary readings set up. And there's the, those mass readings on Sundays and feast days are so rich, and there's so much that we can learn about the Bible just from meditating on those. And so I wrote those books to kind of unpack those readings because there's so much in them, and 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 we read them in like seven minutes. Like the other day, I showed up six minutes late for mass, and and the homily was already going on. I'm like, <laughs> you telling me that you read all those scriptures in, and, and walked in and sang a song in less than six minutes? You know, there's so much in there, and it, and and it can go in one ear and out the other. And so I wrote those Word of the Lord books to really help people, like, you know, get into those readings. So coming up, uh, you know, this next Sunday of Advent, I believe we're going to have a reading from uh, Baruch. Uh, uh, is that Baruch? Yes. I think our first Sunday of Advent was Jeremiah. Next Sunday, I believe the first reading is Baruch. Well, who is Baruch? You know, what is this book, Baruch? You know, so I talk about that and kind of introduce him to people you know, for the first reading and then talk about, you know, what is this Psalm doing? You know, it's just like 
how does it connect to, to what's going on in the mass? And so resources like that can be helpful to people as well. Yeah, and this is a fantastic resource you've given to us. You, you for a long time, have written reflections on Sunday readings on, on your blog page as well, too, that I've always followed for a long time now. And now we have a, we, we have a hard copy kind of resource to go to any time um, that you've, you've given to us. And I think it's fantastic to, to connect those readings together um, and to understand that, that broader context, whether you read that before Mass or, or after Mass, I, I have found reading that and then helping to explain to your, to your kids what's going on. Like you can distill that down to, oh, here's some connections that Daddy is so smart and making. <laughs> look, look at, you know, and, and I think it's a fantastic, fantastic resource because, right, that's, that's the context for, for the, the, the scriptures, right, is the liturgy. And the church gives us here these, these fantastic connections within the old right. and, and the new and the epistles and the Psalms. And it's such a shame to let that go to waste right. and, and to read your Bible apart from understanding right. it, 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 it in that way. Right. So I, I really appreciate the the links you make there. That's for right. Us, right. And, and this puts me in mind of another difference between Bible reading as a Protestant versus a Catholic. As a Protestant, the, the reading of Scripture was sort of like an end in itself because the Scripture right, facilitated yeah. this communion with God. And, and that is true. The Scriptures do facilitate communion with God, but there is a more profound communion with God that we have in the sacraments. And as Catholics, you know, the Scriptures are not an end in themselves. They, they're not like... Uh, their own goal, okay? As Catholics, the Scriptures actually have a goal that leads us to receiving Christ in the Eucharist, it, it, it's, which is communion with God. The point of the Scriptures is to lead us into communion with God, and the most intimate communion that, uh, with God that we can have in this life is, is the sacramental communion with Him in the Most Blessed Sacrament. And, of course, that will be replaced by the beatific vision in the life to come. But um, but the, the the Bible actually literally leads up to the new covenant, you know. And again, Bible basics for Catholics. My first book, I try to show this carefully that what you have in the Bible is a sequence of covenants that get more profound and uh, more uh, more in depth as you progress through the Bible, and ultimately it leads up to this new covenant. And the new covenant actually turns out to be the Eucharist. Jesus points this out in Luke twenty two twenty. He lifts the cup of the Last Supper and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, and if you've been reading the Bible along all the way up until Luke, you know, well, there was a covenant with Adam, there was a covenant with Noah, there was a covenant with Abraham, there was a covenant with Moses, there was a covenant with David, then the prophets prophesied there, there would be a new covenant. Covenant is this family relationship. These earlier covenants had their limitations and were broken and and did not present the complete possibility for salvation. And the promise was, you know, one day a covenant that's unbreakable and that will completely unite us with God is going to come. And that happens through through the Eucharist. And so, so it's so appropriate then to read the scriptures in Mass in, in a very real sense. The point of all of the Bible is, is the Eucharist, because the Eucharist is where we we experience communion with 
Jesus, and of course, Jesus is God. So the Eucharist is where we experience the most intimate possible communion with God in this life. And that's the point of the whole Bible. Okay. And so to read the Bible in mass and then come forward and receive Jesus, who is the word of God in the flesh and to receive him into our flesh. And so it becomes real. You know, it's not just words at that point, but it becomes reality and we've got this real union between ourselves and jesus uh which is what the book has been talking about so i mean to read the bible and then not take the eucharist is like i've often said it's like reading the menu at the chinese restaurant and never ordering gentle toast chicken it's like reading a manual about <laughs> swimming but never jumping in the pool you know the the manual about swimming is is to get you to jump into the pool and, and the Bible is to get you to receive the sacraments. And we could include the other sacraments as well because they're important, but, you know, uh, especially the most blessed ones. So, yeah, there's, there's just this, this um, you know, that's really different about my reading of the Bible, that the Bible now leads, always leads me back to the sacraments, you know. Um, you know, when I reflect on the Gospels and, and do my own personal devotion, you know, inevitably, you know, what I see in the text from Paul or from John or so on leads me to a deeper appreciation of my actual contact with Christ through uh, through the sacraments. And and so that that relationship uh, keeps getting deeper and deeper. <laughs> very well said. Very well said. Dr. Bergsma, it's always a pleasure having you on this show, uh, much of the chagrin of all the other guests who, who, who uh, come on. I'm here. more pleasurable uh, than your other guests, right? Yeah, <laughs> oh, oh, much so, yeah. Where can listeners go? I'll put links to, the, to this, uh, this particular book here on the Mass Readings in the show notes for this show in the description on, on YouTube. Where else can they go to find more stuff from you or to follow you? Where do you want to point them yeah, towards? Yeah, so great. So, um uh, so there's my blog. Uh, go to catholicbibleteacher.com, and uh, that will well actually that go that'll redirect my website, and you can get most of my books and and my audio because I have a lot of stuff on CD and MP3 that folks can take advantage of. Um, check us out at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Um, if you just like type in St. Paul Center into a search engine. And that's going to uh, pop up. I think it's something like, you know, stpaulcenter.com. And then we have a publishing arm called Emmaus Road Books. And you can order uh, the, the Word of the Lord series um, from straight from the publisher uh, there. So th that's great. My blog is called thesacredpage.com. Uh, and that's where, you know, I, I still put up commentaries on the Sunday reading. I missed last week, uh, mea culpa, but I'll, I'll get uh, <laughs> I'll get the next couple of weeks of Advent posted uh, probably tomorrow. And uh, so, yeah, those are all ways to uh, to connect. Um, and, um, you know, more and more uh, here at the St. Paul Center, we're putting stuff up on YouTube. So check out uh, our YouTube channel for the St. Paul Center and uh, the video that we're putting up. Um, I comment on the, the scripture readings for every Wednesday and Friday on a, on a podcast that we call Letters from Home. And then, you know, Dr. Hahn and others here at the St. Paul Center take the other days of the week. But I, I always have Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, Dr. Hahn and I have been doing a dialogue about the Sunday readings uh, that just started this past week. You can check that out at the St. Paul Center website. 
Um, we just did a dialogue on the first Sunday of Advent, and we've shot, you know, the second, third, and fourth Sundays already, and those will go up uh, soon as well. And, and that's been a whole lot of fun because we've just been—it's been like tennis, like theological tennis. You know, we've hit the ball back and forth between each other. Uh, for a while and you know the different insights that we see in, in the text has been very enriching and kind of delightful so I encourage people to check that out as well <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun that's one of the one of the the one to fly in that room but you put cameras in there so we all can be a fly in that room <laughs> that's a fantastic oh i love that uh, dr bergsman thank you so much for being here uh once again i really appreciate it listeners love it as well i want to say god bless you and the work you're doing for the church and sincerely thank you so much for being the nicest guy in uh, in uh, catholic podcast uh, guesting okay. Thank you. All right. See you later, Keith. Take care. Well, friends, thank you once again for listening to the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. John Bergsma. He's always a great guest to have on the show and so much fun we had this week, I think. I hope that you enjoyed it. All the links to his fantastic book, The Word of the Lord, the unpacking of the Sunday Mass readings, and his other books as well in the show notes for this show so you can get some of those materials. It's fantastic stuff, really great. Some of my favorite books are from the esteemed Dr. Bergsma. Love his stuff. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website for show notes and for my blog as well. We're at Cordial Catholic on Instagram and Twitter. The Cordial Catholic on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Cordial Catholic, and The Cordial Catholic on Facebook as well. Please do email me. It's cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys. I love your emails. I love you when you reach it out to the show. It really helps it to feel like we're, we're doing something here. And there's a community going on when I hear from you guys. So, so thank you for your emails. I get back to them as soon as I can. It's overwhelming sometimes, but I, I will get back to all those emails. I do promise. So please reach out. Say hello. I love hearing from you guys. It's always fantastic. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic or PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic to support this show. And you have my utmost thanks for doing that. It's not my full-time job. And so that helps the thing to keep going and growing week after week. So thank you. Please tell a friend. Please pray for me. And please know that I'm praying for you too. Talk to you again next week, guys. Take care. God bless. And thanks so much. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.